Lord, thank you for gathering these people. Thank you for bringing them here. And Lord, as we're reminded, Lord, why we are here, uh, and it's not to uh, enjoy a humid room. It's to enjoy the comfort of your gospel, your word, the fact that you speak to us and that you have something to say. So Lord, help our ears to be open and our hearts to be full as we encounter your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most heartbreaking realities of walking the Christian faith is seeing somebody that you're close to walk away from the Christian faith. I wonder who comes to your mind when I said that. If it's a close friend, a coworker, a classmate, that you tangibly have an example of somebody that you know that has walked away from the faith. Maybe it's a family member. Somebody who was standing in your wedding party when you got married, a brother or sister in Christ that you met in college, a person that you have prayed with and studied the Bible with and gathered with at church, and that person that you're thinking of, you know now, is no longer following the Lord. Others might be here and they're not thinking about somebody specific, you're just thinking about yourself, how you feel you might be on the cusp of either keeping your faith or losing your faith, or maybe your faith is perfectly healthy, but just thinking about these scenarios leads you to the question, what can I do to minister to people in my life who are struggling with their faith? And this psalm is all about that. This is a psalm about a person who nearly lost his faith. Look at verses 1 through 2. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He starts by declaring what he knows to be true. God is good. He's good to his people and those who are pure in heart. But he is slipping. He almost slipped. He almost lost it. This is the the language of life's journey in faith. But he almost lost his faith. He almost lost his foothold in the gospel. And raises the question, what tripped him up? And this psalm doesn't go through every single scenario about why somebody might be tempted to slip away from the faith, but it gives us a specific example to work with, as as well as what this psalmist did, what this person did to come back to the faith. And so hopefully, with this testimony from the psalm written in God's word, that it will give you a real expression of what this is like, as well as what the pathway back to the Lord's gospel looks like. So let's look at this struggle. What is he struggling with? Verses 3 through 5. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. So the psalmist looks on the arrogant, looks at the wicked. Why? Because when he looks at them, they have it all. They're rich, they're prosperous, they have no struggles, they have health, they have strength, they don't have any burdens and any of the other issues that it seems that everybody else has. Have you ever ever been here before? You see a coworker, a neighbor, or a classmate who seems to have everything, everything that they want. They're successful, yet without stress. They have a lot of wealth, but no worries. They They have people that are looking up to them even as they trample on others to get there. And that brings up the other part of the struggle. These are folks that are very successful and they have everything, but how did they get there? They got there not by doing the right thing, but by doing the wrong thing. Look at verses 6 through 11. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possessions of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? So these successful people with no burdens get to this point in life by their pride and their violence. Their hearts are callous towards others. Their minds dream up all kinds of wicked things to do. And with their mouth, they are scoffing at others. They're threatening other people with their power and their influence. And they declare that they're entitled to anything that they want. And people are responding not by running away from these folks, but going to them in envy that they want their life to be like them. And not only that, but they openly reject God. They think they're beyond God's rule and authority, that God doesn't know anything about them, nor can he do anything about how they are getting ahead in life. So that's what's going on. So the psalmist summarizes in verse 12, this is his, this is his struggle. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. And that's what he sees. And now he might be blind to situations where there's an exception, but in general, he's seen something true in the world that maybe you have seen, that those, there are people that get ahead in life by destroying others, by getting ahead through wicked means rather than righteous means, and it creates this struggle because you look at the world and it's like, that's not the way it ought to be. It should be the humble, the pure in heart, the righteous. Those are supposed to be the people that are blessed, but it's these wicked, proud, oppressive people that stomp on the heads of others that seem to be the ones that are getting ahead. And the psalmist looks at that reality in the world, and his faith is struggling now. He is having doubts about what God is doing in the world and in his life because this exists. And it leads him to ask these questions, to have these struggles in verses 13 to 14. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. Here the psalmist is essentially asking the question, is it even worth it anymore? I'm doing the right thing, but I'm getting punished for it. I'm pure in heart, but I suffer. These people are wicked, but they have no worries, yet I am the one that's burdened. The psalmist is saying, I'm doing the right thing, treating others with respect and love, yet the one who are afflicting the people that I love and the righteous, they're the ones that are getting ahead. And he's asking these questions, essentially saying, why is it even worth it to do the right thing if at the end of the day I'm just going to suffer anyway? To make it more of maybe questions you could ask nowadays, is the person that gets to the point because of the struggles and the unrighteousness and the unjustness of the world, and they say, why even keep loving my neighbor? Why keep donating to the causes of Christ? Why keep serving in my church and serving my neighbor and serving my community? Why keep doing the right thing if all it results in is misery and pain for me, but those who reject the gospel, they don't love their neighbor, they don't serve the church, they keep getting ahead. Meanwhile, I suffer and I'm behind. That's the struggle. And that might not be a struggle that you have or that somebody in your life is struggling with the faith for a different reason, but this is a real struggle. 
this happens. You look at the world and you see this and it says, that's not right. And it's tripping me up and it's tripping up my faith and I don't know what to do. But then the psalmist goes on and he figures out how to bring himself back to the faith and the gospel. So what helped him? What helped him start to turn away from this struggle that's happening in his life and what he observes to be true about the world and to come back to the Lord? Look at verses 15 through 17. This is what he did. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. The psalmist says that this struggle and this thinking almost led him astray, and because of his struggle, he was leading others astray as well. He doesn't use you people that when they struggle with the faith, they take others down with them. And that's the trajectory that he was on until what happened? What changed the trajectory of his life? He went to and gathered with God's people in the sanctuary. He got back with the people of God who worship the Lord, hear his word, and commit to his purposes. And so much of deconstruction of the faith can happen when one leaves healthy gatherings of worship to try to work out their doubts and their struggles by themselves. If one is struggling, then one of the ways to get back to a crystal clear focus of what the faith is is to go back into God's holy presence with God's holy people and to worship and to regain a God-centered vision of all of life. That's one of the reasons that I love it when people and churches name a space like this a sanctuary rather than an auditorium. I love when it's called sanctuary. I like, and it's not just because I'm a pastor and I like churchy terms. It's what it means. Sanctuary is a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. And all week long, sometimes it feels like we're being tossed and turned by the doubts of this world, by the counter-narratives of the gospel that we get exposed to each and every week. But you know there's a space where there's other people who believe in the Lord that gathers in this room that's set apart for God's holy purpose because this is a place of safety in the gospel and refuge in God's presence. And you gather here to get your head clear again because when you go back out there, you're going to be challenged. These are going to, you're going to be in spaces that are not committed and set apart to be a place of safety in the gospel or set apart for God's holy purposes. So when it starts to get fuzzy out there, you go to a place of sanctuary where you know the focus is on the Lord and other people are gathering there to focus on the Lord with you. And it doesn't have to be a space like this. It could be the sanctuary of of a living room where you go and study God's word and pray with his people. It doesn't have to be a big space like that, but it's a sanctuary nonetheless where it's a place of safety and focus on the Lord and his purposes. But it's not enough simply to gather in a place with God's people, but what happens in that space is what makes it a sanctuary. Because sometimes folks start to have doubts with the things that they observe about the world and they start to slip in their faith, but then they gather in spaces that just start to fan the flame of that doubt, start to just add more doubts and insecurities about the faith because maybe the goal of that relationship is they want to to take apart your faith. They want you to slip. 
So the commitment is not only just to go to any place, but it really is a sanctuary, and it's a sanctuary focused on reality. Because now the psalmist is going to unpack what he heard, what he was exposed to, what truth that he got to wrap his arms around when he did gather with God's people in the sanctuary. So what was he reminded of in that space? Look at verses 17 through 20. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny, that is, the wicked who who are prosperous. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So then he gathers again in God's sanctuary, and he remembers this truth. What is the final destiny of the wicked? They may seem prosperous now, but in reality, God has placed them on slippery ground. Everything that they depend on is finite. It's something that rust and moth will destroy someday. And since they have rejected God, mocked him and his people, then God will cast them down in ruin. And he says that it's like a dream when one awakes. It's such a vivid way to describe this. A dream when one awakes. Are you ever in the middle of a dream and then suddenly your alarm clock wakes you up and you're like, whoa, whoa, oh, that was a dream. Like now I'm back to reality. That, that I didn't realize I was in the middle of a dream. Just moments ago when you have that experience, the dream seemed so real and tangible, but then in an instant, the dream is gone. You're back to reality. And that's what the wealth and success of the wicked are like when God arises to judge them. All their prosperity and all their power vanish like a dream. And they spent their days despising the Lord, and then they realize and find out the reality in that day of judgment that now God despises them and will judge them and destroy them. And that future reality of the wicked is not the only thing that the psalmist recalled in that moment in the sanctuary. He also is reminded of his future reality. Look at verses 21 through 24. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold, my, hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Those initial verses are recalling, again, that struggle with the faith, the wrestling that the psalmist is experiencing when looking at the prosperity of unrighteous. He's real with the Lord. This is where I was at. His heart was grieved, and he was growing in bitterness. He was ignorant, but he wasn't looking towards the truth. But he knows again now in this moment what is real. The Lord has been holding him the entire time. God is guiding him, and then one day he will be with the Lord forever, witnessing his glory and being satisfied in that alone. In the past and in the present and forever in the future, God will be with them, and that he is sure. That is his reality. And what will be more satisfying than being in the presence of God forever? That's what he starts pondering in verses 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the psalmist considers all the pleasures of the earth and says it's nothing. None of those good things are worth comparing to the Lord. 
you wonder, like, what was he thinking about? Was he thinking about his favorite meal, the most breathtaking natural wonder that he could think of, the closest of his friends? And after he considered all those things and compared them to the Lord, he says, none of those good things compare to how satisfying it is to know the Lord and to be known by him. And so the psalmist declares that he desires the Lord more than any earthly desire, and then he considers heaven. He says, heaven is nothing if the Lord is not there. Who am I I in heaven but you? If you take God out of heaven, it's not heaven. The reason why heaven is so glorious is because that's where the presence of God reigns, and it's not heaven if his presence and his glory is not there. So when he considers heaven, that's what he longs for. It's just to be with the Lord, to behold and be satisfied in his glory and his wonder and his beauty. And finally, he declares that one day, Everything might let him down. His body might let him down. His heart might let him down. His spirit. But he doesn't depend on any of those things for strength. He depends on the everlasting and faithful strength of the Lord. And the Lord will be his portion forever. He will be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And so this is where he ends in verses 27 through 28. This is what's real. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. All week long, we likely encounter things in this world that may cause our faith to slip. And one of those things is looking around and people getting ahead, even though They are unfaithful and wicked and get ahead by destroying others. And that and the numerous other scenarios can bring doubt into your heart and cause your faith to struggle and wrestle. But then you get back into a space like this, a place that's committed to be a place of safety in the gospel and refuge in the Lord to point you back to what is real, what is true. And we are reminded in this place of the reality of the gospel. Remember the gospel, brothers and sisters. Jesus is eternal life, and he is pure righteousness. In his ministry on this earth, he committed to the service of others so that they have eyes to see, that they may be set free from bondage, and that they may be forgiven of their sins. And Jesus Christ humbled himself and became a servant to all. But what was his reward in that gospel story? Those with power became jealous and felt threatened. So they plotted to have him killed. Jesus had a disciple betray him, and the rest of them abandoned him. He was unjustly declared guilty. He was beaten, mocked, and stripped down to nothing. He was nailed to a cross and left there to die. And I bet in that moment, those disciples who saw all those things were about in the same place that this psalmist was at. This is the righteous one. This is the Messiah. And now the powerful and the wicked and the unrighteous beat him up and crucified him. This is not the way it was supposed to go. The pure in heart and the righteous one, Jesus, was supposed to overcome them, not them nailing them to a cross. And they probably struggled, like that psalmist said, and said, this is not right. God, did you abandon your son? That's likely where they were at. But remember what the reality is know it and as they know it now too that was not the final chapter for jesus 
Three days later, he rose from the grave. And in this victorious resurrection, sin and evil and even death are defeated. And there's no pride of man, no power of hell that will be able to stop the righteousness of the Son of God. In Christ's humility and service, he laid down his life only to take it up again. And we know because of the gospel that God did not abandon his son to the wicked. It's through his death and resurrection that God offers refuge and his presence to those who believe. And those who run away from God and cling to the dreams of this world will one, way, one day wake up to the dreadful reality of his judgment. But in this sanctuary, in this moment, in this gathering, we remember today, brothers and sisters, what is real. That in Christ, God overcomes the powerful and the prideful. And so that we who are humble in our faith may enjoy his presence forever and ever and ever.